This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Acme. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Acme. Gosh, I can almost see everyone there. It's very intimate. My name is James Nolan. I work in the film programs team here. And uh, over the course of um, my many years here, we've been programming a whole series of fashion on film events, as well as the program of films. And um, a couple of years ago, we screened a documentary on Naples and Neapolitan fashion called Ipoichi Napoli. So I just have to catch my breath. (laughs) And um, so part of that um, screening was we did a walking tour of Melbourne, uh, discovering the many delights of Neapolitan tailoring that you can find in Melbourne. And amazingly, there is a lot to be (laughs) discovered. It was a 40 degree day. It was very fun. (laughs) And then last year, we screened a documentary on the infamous or famous um, hat company, um, Borsalino, um, which is one of the oldest uh, Italian hat makers in the, you know, from that part of the world. And we were very lucky to go down to the City Hatters and, and really learn about the craft of hat making. And this time we've brought it back here, which is really wonderful because we've got all the talent that we need right here with us. Uh, and we're talking about denim. Did, just out of interest, did you all get to see the film that we're weaving Shabrisa? Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I'm so glad you got to check it out. It was a really special film to include in this season and, um, and um, you know, hopefully we'll be bringing some more films like that in, in, in the coming months. So look out, watch this space. But today I am joined by four incredible human beings, actually. They've all got incredible stories about their place in the denim world in Melbourne, in Australia, in the world, and we're very lucky to have them here. Just going to quickly introduce them. But we have Nick Hughes from Denim Australia. Next to me is Martin, Martin Kirby from Good Godspeed Store, sorry. <laughs> Chris Pickings, third one around from Pickings and Parry, I'm sure you know. And Anthony Wicks um, from Ant Hill Workshop. Would you please make them all welcome? I thought we, instead of me reading a dry introduction to forgot, each of our special Nick guests. Yeah. <laughs> no, didn't. Yeah. No. Oh, sorry, did I not? Oh, Nick Hughes, I'm no, so sorry. Yes, I said that's right. Yes, sorry. Pay attention, Chris. Rather than me reading out dry biographies, which I, I know in a lot of live events people do, I thought I'd... We'd get it from the horse's mouth. So I'd like to uh, welcome all our panellists here to, um, to tell us um, their journey to the denim world and, and where they fit in. So would you like to go ahead? Martin? Mine's sort of like the, the, the very introduction is probably a little bit embarrassing for most people that know me now. But my best friend at the time and I wanted to start our own denim brand because we were in love with the brand Subi at the time. Um, so I'll I was against you. What's that? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I was, I used to sing in a band and that was sort of what I did for, for about 10 years. I'm 31 now, but from high school I sung in a band and a lot of people in the, the genre that I toured in, which was the hardcore genre, wore Subi jeans. Um, and at the time you couldn't buy Subis in many places at all. There was only one boutique in Melbourne in Flinders Lane that sold it and it was a ladies store. Um, and I used to go in there and buy a size 12 Subi, Lady Subis, and, and the, the staff in there were 
in, in their forties and I was sixteen, and they used to look at me, "What are you doing in here?" You know, and <laughs> so I used to wear size twelve ladies subies, and we wanted to make our own denim brand. Uh, and it really, though, honestly, was about three months between wearing. Uh, Lady Subies to wearing Ironheart jeans, um, and Ironheart was featured in the documentary. Um, and I've brought the first pair that I ever bought is this pair on the end here. Um, and at the time, they were the heaviest jeans that you could get in the world. Um, they're 21 ounce. Now there's heavier ones, and I've got some of those as well. But at the time, they were just absolutely ridiculous sort of thing. Um, and so I went from these super skinny Lady Subi jeans to Ironheart extremely heavy uh, Japanese like motorcycle jeans. Um, and my friend and I wanted to make a denim brand and I was obsessed with this end of denim from the, the second I saw it and no one in Australia basically had ever seen anything like that and I was spent about the next 18 months trying to make this denim brand and visiting every manufacturer and all these uh, like, you know, like sewing machine experts and whatever all around Victoria trying to make that <laughs> and so I thought I was going to be able to make that. <coughs> Um, and that never worked out, and the brand stopped about six months later. Um, and at the time, it was before, like, Facebook. It was before Instagram. It was before information on Japanese denim was really not readily available. Um, and I, I couldn't find Japanese fabric, just couldn't source it. I met people that told me what they had was Japanese fabric, and it really wasn't. Um, and so it was, yeah, it, was, it, was a, it feels like a lifetime ago now to where... You know, you see Japanese jeans every day, um, which is great. Uh, so, yeah, I brought these jeans. Um, I went to Japan in about 2007 or something, I think, uh, with my band, and I spent all of my money. It was about $500 at the time. The yen was really strong on this pair of jeans. That, And if you've ever bought rigid, like, raw Japanese denim, it's called raw when it's completely unwashed. Um, it's really rigid and really stiff, so I actually I couldn't get the top button up. So I bought these jeans that I was unsure if they were ever going to fit me. Uh, it was $500, and they, at the time, they used to stand up by themselves. Um, when you, yeah, that's how heavy they are. You'll feel them, and, and now they're, they're really soft and worn in, which is one of the, like, as the documentary says, that's the unique sort of beautiful thing about denim. But they really did stand up by themselves, um, and I remember just everyone I knew was like, what have you bought? Like, you're an idiot, basically. All my friends like, these are terrible jeans. But, yeah, that started... From there on, that was that was basically where my love for Japanese denim um, started. Since then, the landscape has changed like globally. Like it's really big business now. Um, again, when my band went to uh, San Francisco um, back in the day, there was only really one boutique Japanese denim store in the world at that point, um, and they presented that the movie um, called Selfage. And I made my entire band go all the way out to Selfedge in Mission, and it was closed the day we were there. <coughs> and they hated me. And uh, about three years ago, I met the owner of Selfedge in, in Tokyo, actually. And I said to him, dude, I went to your store, and I was so excited it was closed. He's like, you sure? It's never been closed ever. I mean, it was definitely closed. I stood there with five people. We were trying to, you know. And he's, he's like, I'm going to call someone up, because I don't think we've ever had a closed day ever. But I stood there. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so at the time it was a really um, hard thing to find and, and, and I wanted to do a store back then and, and ended up touring in the band for a bit longer, um, travelling back and forth to Japan every now and then with the band and just picking up my own personal stuff, which is a bit of it over there. And then eventually I lived in Japan for a few years um, and got close with a lot of brands um, 
in the sort of Harajuku area of Tokyo, which is sort of the, the cool spot of Tokyo, I guess. Um, and I was lucky because I was like white guy with tattoos and skateboarding around. Like a lot of cool Japanese dudes wanted to be friends with me, which was great. And then I ended up meeting these great brands and um, my visa expired, moved back to Australia, opened a store so I could keep traveling back to Japan is my sort of excuse. And I, I, go, I go there on Tuesday again, actually, for, for two weeks for a buying trip. Yeah, so that's basically the, the gist of it. Um, and yeah, there's, since then I've met a lot of denim nerds, I guess is the word that we use. Um, there's a guy, this guy, Mike here, is take, take, <laughs> takes my breath away. Every time I talk to him about denim, I'm like, you are a denim nerd, but, I, <coughs> but I'm definitely a denim nerd. Um, and yeah, I've got a lot of really expensive jeans. Um, and it's, yeah, it is, it, I guess it really is a passion. And it's one of those things where originally you would, you would just like look at someone like the bottom of their, the cuff of their jeans and you would see that they were wearing like cool jeans. And it was like, oh, this guy, you know? It's seven or eight years ago, and now it's every day, and and uh, and yeah, I guess we're all here for a common sort of thing. It does really become part of your lifestyle, as strange as that sounds. So yeah, that's probably that's probably the gist of it. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tell us your story. <laughs> I feel like Oprah. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, my sort of denim real quick, yeah. go start from streetwear. Start from the street. Start yeah. from the bank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, basically, my journey within the denim world starts back in England and starts with footwear. So before I was into denim, I was into footwear. And when I was an active member on an online forum posting pictures of trainers or sneakers, as you Australians would call them, um, you had to have the right jeans to go with your shoes and then you had to have salvage. If you were posting a picture of your shoes, you needed to have a pair of salvage jeans on. And then from then you kind of delve into a world and you go down a rabbit hole and you find out a lot more about um, a completely different world that you never knew about. And for me, that was the discovery of salvage denim, heavy denim. Um, and I went on that journey um, simultaneously to still being on the, the, the similar path of being obsessed with with footwear. How, um, how many shoes did you have? Oh, uh, <laughs> a lot. I've... <laughs> Hundreds. My, my wife can uh, testify that I've always been a, a collector and a hoarder of anything, whether I was a kid collecting toys or whether I was collecting shoes or whether I was collecting... So most of the, most of the toys up here are Nick's, actually. And yeah. Whether I was collecting Buddy Lee dolls and, like... <laughs> I just, I like to hoard. I like to own things and collect things. And it sounds quite materialistic, but it's not. It's, it's, it's more about the hunt. It's about finding these things that no one else has. And, and then having it on display or having it in a box or knowing that I've got it or having these dead stock vintage T-shirts from the early 90s that were hand-pulled by Sean Stussy or th th things like that, which brings it back to the streetwear world that Martin was talking about. Um, within... Uh, the UK fashion scene. I've always worked in the industry and been part of the industry um, and worked in stores that sell premium products um, and worked for brands doing wholesale and distribution like Denham, which was the brand that really kind of opened my eyes up to the world of denim. Um, and then about five years ago, 
when we were living in London and life was great. I was told, oh, we're going to move to Australia. And I was like, oh. And so after a little bit of hesitation, me and my wife moved out to Australia and it was probably the best decision, both personally and career-wise, that's ever been made on my behalf. <laughs> uh, but now I'm over here and I used to, I, I used to work for um, a retail chain called Glue Stores as their denim trainer. So I used to go around and teach the staff how to excite and evoke passion about denim to customers. Because if you can't have a member of staff in a shop to sell the jeans, then jeans generally don't get bought. Or people will go for the lowest common denominator and buy the cheapest jeans available because unless you've got someone telling you why you're buying these amazing jeans and why it's worth investing money in good products. Which people, was my role, actually. Yeah. So when I moved back from Japan, I had no job and I worked for Nick. Yeah. So um, I employ yeah. and train amazing people like Martin. <laughs> and, um, so we yeah, it, it, it's about getting the staff members excited about the products and then their excitement then trickles down to the end customer. Mm. So it's about educating people from a grassroots basis to make sure people understand and love denim in the same way that I do. I just want to pass on that passion and knowledge to everyone. And across the spectrum, like... We, we had denim training nights at when, when, when I was working at Super. So I worked for, for Nick, basically. <laughs> we had this little secret circle, sort of, but we worked for Denham within Superglue. Um, and we had training nights, and Nick would train the girls in the store on selling premium women's denim, which is premium in a, in a price point, and, but a completely different world to this. So it would be premium because it would have you know, really nice stretch in it and, and whatever. It was premium fabrics and made in Italy and all sorts of things, but very different to the 23-ounce Japanese jeans I'm wearing, but equally as important um, for women trying to find a great fit. And that's where Nick is like... Yeah, there's amazing brands that manufacture in LA or Italy and um, use uh, the best sort of uh, stretch fabrics like Tencel to, that can have that active recovery that will bring that shape back in and um, figure-hugging type of denim, um, the denim world, obviously this panel is very male orientated and we're all about 100% cotton and raw denim and heavier is better and, but that's not general public and that's not the greater world. Um, so there is that other side to it and it's about uh, kind of a happy medium for me. I work for quite a commercial brand um, but we do have a very integral side. Uh, we make amazing products in Japan but at the same time, we still make amazing products all around the world, and we can appeal to a wider demographic for that reason. Yeah. Mm. Um, so now, up to present day, uh, we're kind of at with my denim journey. I'm the, the brand manager for a Dutch denim label called Denim the Gene Maker. Uh, it's a nine-year-old denim brand, so it's relatively new in the denim world if you compare that to sort of Levi's at 100 and... 20, 100 and <laughs> a lot, 100 and a lot years old. Nine years old is very, very young within the denim world. Um, and I look after that on a wholesale and a resale, uh, retail basis. We have an amazing store in the Rocks in Sydney, if any of you ever get up to Sydney. And we're looking to open up our first Melbourne flagship store at some point this year. We're just. Gertrude Street. Maybe. Uh, we're, we're just organising a few lease issues and things like that. But yeah, we, we definitely will have 
um, a Denham retail store in Melbourne by the midpoint of this year. So that's a very exciting time for, for me personally and for Denham as a brand. And thank you. <laughs> That's <Fantastic>. really it. <laughs> I don't know many of you know Chris already, but Chris is the proprietor of Pickings and Parry, uh, sort of almost an inst a newish institution on Gertrude Street, but a very welcome <laughs> one. Go ahead, Chris. Uh, thank you. I just want to start by thanking Acme for showing this film and doing this because, in my experience with Australian fashion, um, this section of the industry doesn't get much respect or acknowledgement in Fashion Week at all, and now it is, which is great, so thank you. Um, <laughs> not in my journey. I'm not Australian, if you hadn't guessed already. Um, <laughs> if you can't understand me, please tell me. And There will be it. subtitles on the Subtitles film. on the recording. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of came from uh, an engineering background in England, in the car industry first, and then food and pharmaceuticals, so that's kind of got nothing really to do much with what I do now. Um, but my denim journey started with my grandfather and my father. So my grandfather was a train driver uh, from the 50s onwards, so he wore overalls to work and always had denim. And in his wardrobe, and my father was a butcher, but he was also a musician, and he was a massive Americana fan, huge Americana fan. So his wardrobe was full of... Um, denim jackets and cowboy boots and Stetson hats and all sorts of things that were really cool. And he, he passed away when I was very young, so my inheritance was kind of all that stuff. So I was always interested in clothing for that purpose. And in the UK, I think the, the buying culture for young men in fashion was quite strong and people invested in clothing a lot. It was more of like a, a kind of a, a rite of passage when you just go and spend a lot of money on your clothing and how you present yourself so and no not not I had very not that many but they were all good but, uh, <laughs> I do think that expensive. is uh, definitely something from the north of England yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's yeah it's, it's about got a lot to do with violence and football I think and was, uh, wearing your wealth <laughs> you wear your wealth yeah definitely I think from a working class area of England and with me working in factories as well like everyone kind of got was well paid but worked hard and spent all their money on alcohol and clothing um, <laughs> And I, I kind of still live by that, I think. Um, <laughs> but when I moved to Australia, um, get back to how I got to where I am now, when I moved to Australia, and specifically to Melbourne, I expected to come from Sydney to Melbourne and find a lot more of that sort of culture of, of quality clothing and style. And Melbourne's got this name of the, the sort of fashion capital of Australia. And I got here and thought, I went, where, where are the men's stores? There was like hardly any, and particularly in this area of menswear, there was got like one or two stores in Melbourne at all that were doing anything and I was kind of a bit over my career at the time and one night in Gerald's Bar in Carlton North, if anyone's been there, great place, um, <laughs> I sort of mentioned that I wanted to open a store and like the, the, I needed to get these brands that I liked that I couldn't buy anywhere in Melbourne out there and sort of get people back to buying things that were good and for the right reasons and not just, just denim but everything like if you if you're going to spend a lot of money on clothing, you should buy things that are good and have got a purpose and a, a connection to something like real and long-lasting. and That's something that's valuable, I suppose. Um, and everyone sort of said, it's a great idea. You should do that. And then I went, oh, yeah, maybe I should. And then my wife, who's here somewhere, started to tell everybody that we were doing it, um, <laughs> told their parents that we were doing it, and, um, and I had no choice. So... <laughs> um, <laughs> 
Then we started mortgaging things and borrowing money from everybody, <laughs> um, traveling to go and we did a big trip to Europe and went to all the stores in sort of New York and uh, in Berlin, Paris, London, sort of get a sort of research trip and look at brands and start talking to people. And I went to Bread and Butter in Berlin, which was, uh, if anyone's been there before, it was an amazing thing that's now no longer. And we opened the store nearly four years ago now. So that's how I got here. And in terms of expertise, I'm not anywhere as good as these guys, I don't think in denim itself. But in terms of context in the sort of the reasons behind denim and why it's important and how that translates into fashion in general, I think that's where I come in, which is good. And I'm glad I got asked to be here. So thank you. I'll pass you on to Anthony. <laughs> Go ahead, Anthony. <laughs> Is this on? Yep. yep. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so my... Um, I sort of came from a bit of a, a different path to these guys as well, which which is good. It's good to have four different stories. Um, it sounds corny and made up, but as a kid, whenever I'd get new clothes, I always couldn't wait for them to, to age and... and, and soften up and feel like I'd been wearing them and been thrashing around the yard and all that sort of stuff. So I've always had this sort of um, draw to the patina or the wear patterns that you get from from clothes and that sort of thing. Natural wear that's particular to the wearer, not like this jumper is ironically <laughs> opposite to what I'm actually saying right now <laughs> however it yeah but anyway i i of course um yeah so basically i've always been drawn to something that really reflects how something's been worn um what the person has been doing in those things all the sorts of things that they were talking about in weaving shibusa um as to why we're so drawn to denim and not just denim, it, it goes goes on to, to leather goods, on to canvas, all workwear, military, and all that sort of thing. So that was me sort of growing up. And then about, I don't know, what was it, maybe 12 years ago, um, I was in the market for some new jeans. Um, was was happy enough to spend 250 bucks this time and was wandering down Little Collins and wandered into Nudie Jeans in that little shoebox store um, that's still there. And the the people in the store, they were pretty ho-hum about their jobs as a lot of retail cats can be, um, which, which is Ever. fine. No. It could be a, a stop gap, but most... <laughs> Yeah, you find a lot of passionate people like like Chris and and Marty and etc. Um, but anyway, they were they were talking about dry denim, which is what Nudie call their raw denim, um, and what Denham call virgin denim, and um, not washing these jeans for six months. And I'd I'd never heard about this, and I I was extremely interested in it, so I went ahead and did that and. Yeah, it had that result that really f reflected um, 
yeah, what I what I did and where I put my keys and where I had my wallet and all this sort of thing. So, um, a couple of years later, I went in and got another pair, and then a couple of years after that, I um, this was would have been about eight years ago or so. I, I started working at David Jones in the in the jeans department, and they stocked an Udi. And then after a while, I started working as the shop and shop rep for for Nudie there. Um, and yeah, just really, really got into it and started discovering salvage jeans, reading about salvage denim. When I first saw this word, I was, I was like, does, does this mean denim that's been discovered in a factory and salvaged from something? And, but it's actually SEL, but you know. <laughs> Pretty daft, but you know, which um, is super common though. Yeah, um, like yeah, his I story is <laughs> sounds like everyone that's ever come into my store ever. Yeah. So I'm pretty it's common. E- yeah. <laughs> 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 it's not what I meant, but no, yeah, no, that's that's fine. Honestly, people come in and go, "So I'm, I want salvage jeans." <laughs> yeah, so I'm, like, All right. I'm yeah. told I want some salvage. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. And so. then, and then you, and then great. That gets the ball rolling and you can start talking to them about denim, <laughs> which is a great time. Um, and, and then, as, as Nick was saying, if you're passionate and they get caught up in that passion and then a couple of years later they might come back in and say, oh, you sold me my first pair of dry or raw denim and this is, this is them now and that's awesome. I've got five pairs now and they're all dark because I... Never wear them. But <laughs> just how do you get those fades? Own one pair of jeans. Um, but yeah, that yeah, working with Nudie certainly perpetuated my passion for for denim and that sort of thing. And Nudie having their free repairs, um, that then got me. Oh, I'm not sure if it was that that actually got me into sewing. I'm not sure where the sewing started. All of a sudden I had a whole mess of sewing machines in my house and <laughs> and a, a wife asking... Very heavy sewing machines. Yeah, on. yeah. <laughs> very heavy. <laughs> yeah, a wife asking me what I'm going to do with them. So then I started making bags along along the sort of lines of, say, your Filson or, or Tanner Goods sort of... Um, stream of things out of heavy canvas and denim bags and that sort of thing using salvage denim. Um, and then I, uh, I started to get a bit um, overworking at David Jones. I wanted to move to the nudie store. They, that wasn't able to happen, which is fine, understandable. They wanted to keep me there. And I then thought I'd make a career move and became a supervisor and they then moved me to the underwear and socks department oh. <laughs> at David Jones, nowhere near Denim. Um, I mean, there's certainly a place in every Denim head's heart for a good pair of quality socks. Let's, let's not, let's not um, fuss about with that. But uh, that wasn't really doing it for me. But I was working with, with a guy who plays in a band and he was dealing with Levi's marketing department to get some jackets for a a video that they were doing. Um, And one day just, yeah, I 
I did a motorbike seat for him and he was saying, dude, you got to get out of here. you got to just start doing this stuff full time. Um, it was kind of a scary leap to make because, yeah, you know. And then he said that marketing, they were asking about, they needed a, a, a tailor um, and he put my name forward and then next thing I know I'm in the boardroom or the um, conf meeting room at, at Levi's and... I'm um, brought on board to go up to um, Brisbane to basically customise jackets and do all that sort of stuff, which basically was sewing on patches and that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, and that's that was a bit over two and a half years ago and that's just gathered serious, <laughs> serious speed over the, the last two years, so... Um, from that, I always kept my side um, project Antil Workshop going. And about a year ago now, Chris and I were at Blues Fest. I was there with the Levi's Tailor Shop. We were up at Byron. And he suggested, he mentioned he's got this small room at the back of his shop. Uh, said <laughs> and it's a bit too small, I think, actually. But oh, look, <laughs> I, can, I can squeeze in. Cozy. It's, cool. it's cozy, see. yeah. But, yeah. We, I, I get it done. It's, it's, it's good. So, yeah, Chris had had a few beers and he suggested I, I move in. And then when we got back from Blues Fest, I, I dropped by the shop and said, you know how you mentioned the, uh, the back room, and which was the photo studio at the time and all that? Okay. Sort of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm going to hold you to that. Well, it kind of worked. <laughs> We've been looking for a dining machine for ages and then you and had one. So it <laughs> kind of uh, And I'd been looking well. for a hemming machine. <laughs> for yeah. a <laughs> it was mutually beneficial. Yeah, so so Chris had the hemming machine and I, I brought the dining machine. So um, Does everyone yeah. know the difference or what? Uh, yeah, so yeah. I'll cover that in show and tell. Yeah. yeah, I'll run out of topics and <laughs> I won't be able to bore you later. Um, <laughs> but yeah, basically that, that brings us to the present day. Sure, I've left out something, but that's probably good because I think I've talked long enough. And Thank yeah, you. need to follow Anthony on his, um, Anthony on his um, Instagram feed because you see a lot of great work that he makes, actually. Which Amazing is, embroideries. He's really underselling himself, I feel like. But anyway. <laughs> too kind. Thank you. <laughs> One of the reasons I thought we needed to do this face-to-face -face and in person was that there is a lovely tactility to the craft of denim and to the world of denim and especially fashion of course there's you don't just wear clothes you feel clothes you feel how they how they feel on you and everything like that so well so said. i've asked all the panelists to to a little bit of show and tell of some of their favorite things someone might have gone a bit overboard but <laughs> <laughs> you asked me to bring memorabilia i know i brought i'm not complaining <laughs> <laughs> i think it's amazing actually but i thought um <laughs> I, as I started researching for this event, I realised that there is a lot actually connected with denim and it's really amazing to um, probably share at least some of that, you know, I'm learning and hopefully you're all sort of learning some of this as well. But we thought we'd get Marty to start off. Yeah. Um, and, you I'm know, like yeah. super happy to answer questions. And yes, if there's or, any questions, of course. Yeah, yes, I mean, yeah. I guess my my... Out of the four of us, I guess I have the most sort of experience with Japan and Japanese culture and, and actually there's only one person in that movie that I haven't spent a lot of time with. So all of the guys in the movie are um, 
the, maybe the guy that has the most time in it, the full count guy, Mickey. Um, it, I consider him like a good friend. He's sort of texting all the time and, you know, um, and like I said, I go back to Japan. That was one of the main reasons for starting the store was an, an excuse to get back, to keep going back to Japan because my visa expired. So um, I definitely have an affinity for Japan in general um, and Japanese people and like, yeah, they're, they're just, it's the love they have for, for quality and, and products. Um, and so, has everyone pretty much seen? Did everyone see the the movie? Oh, not everyone. I, I think it was a, a most people. Most people, it. yeah. Everyone knows. Um, there was, I think, like one of the things that like when people come into the store and they ask about, oh, why is everything in your store so expensive? Which it is. Um, <laughs> I'll second that. <laughs> is uh, like one of the things I say is. Um, I say, well, it's all made in Japan. Ninety percent of it's made in Japan. I do have some other brands, but it. And I say that they just. There's a word in Japanese called otaku, and it and it means uh, it means like geek, um, but in in, it's usually associated with like comic books. Um, so like real like real geeky sort of stuff. But to me, like everyone in Japan is otaku. <laughs> if if they're into something, they're into it like two hundred percent. If someone skateboards, they look like they skateboard. Like you can tell the second you see them, they skate. And if like the best Harley Davidsons I've ever seen, the best Triumphs, all everything in any the best subculture, everything I think. It, it, honestly, like, yeah. Um, to take to take one thing and then do it better than everybody else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so you know, all of my friends in Japan that make these brands or or have um, you know like amazing like denim and like anything to do relevant with this, they also have like amazing motorcycles and like vintage chevys and 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 like 1920s ford trucks and you're like how is this in tokyo <laughs> but they're obsessed with quality stuff um and the most common one that i usually say is oh if you were a chef which knives would you buy and everyone just says japanese you know or german or but japanese is probably the the thing um and so in the movie they touched on two guys in and they're both in harajuku in, in tokyo and they have those um small stores they're like dungeons basically um and they have the collections of vintage levi's jeans and the guy was saying oh, i can tell like what era that he's a hundred percent like that is real like he can do that um and he does it by like smell of them and stuff it's it's honestly bizarre um and it doesn't it didn't the, the thing that i thought there's a few things in the movie that i was like oh the translations are, i can't speak fluent by any means but there's a few things that i was like oh he said a lot more cool stuff than that but the one thing that they didn't talk about then was the the price of stuff. So to put it in perspective for like people in the room, you you stand there and and you go, oh that's a th- no that's ten yeah that's ten, ten, ten. that's ten thousand dollars and then you're like wait that's a stack of ten thousand dollar jeans and then you look around and oh they're thirty thousand dollars, like that guy's store has definitely millions of dollars worth of vintage Levi jeans um, and. You can't. You honestly can't. Yeah, it's it's something else. And he's got a stack of some pretty impressive vintage Levi's as well, actually, that Japanese would freak out over. Um, but, yeah, so... And they have things like dead stock denim, which means it's never seen the light of day, basically, and never been worn. And that stuff is just whatever someone wants to pay for it. And there's... I don't actually know how many mi- millions of people live in Japan, but, like, there's enough geeks in Japan to keep, you know, buying that crazy denim. Um and someone sent me an article not long ago about these guys in San Francisco that are, um, uh, which is where Levi's is originally from because of the gold 
rushed and all that in San Francisco, and it was originally miners' workwear and all that sort of thing. Um, and there's a there's a father and son there um, that have been mining or whatever recently, or like they're always searching for gold, even still. And about five or so years ago, they 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 switched it up to mining for denim, because if they find like scraps of vintage denim, they can sell it to Japan for insane prices. So, <laughs> and the guys were just saying it's literally worth more than gold to us if we can find scraps of vintage denim. So that gives you like a indication of how these guys, like how much they really care about stuff. Um, and it's a little embarrassing, honestly, for people like us because, yeah, we're denim experts, like in this, I guess, circumstance. <laughs> but my friends in Japan will just talk to me about stuff and I'll be like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, or like, like, and not just denim, it's about everything. Like, oh, that motorbike and that. And I'm like, yeah, I know it's a Harley and that's about it, you know. But it's, it's, it's in their culture and it's, it's hard to explain unless you really witness it. And it's across food and it's across everything, you know. And, and most people obviously know about it with Japanese food. But um, that's sort of, yeah, what's going on with uh, the denim side of things. They really are as crazy as they seem in that movie. And the prices are, yeah, through the roof. Um, I wrote down some notes while we were watching, while I was watching the movie. Um, and Mickey, the guy from Full Count, the one thing he said was that he doesn't think he could have made the jeans he would have liked to make anywhere except Japan because of communication. And the translation may have like came off as in he wouldn't have been able to communicate in English. But what he was trying to say was, I can't explain like, or maybe Western people can't really explain the level of love you know what i mean like japanese have this extra sort of level of like really explaining like no 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 no, like this you know and then the guy will be like yeah yeah yeah, and they'll be like yeah yeah and like touching like oh it's like my heart and you know like it's really ridiculous but i think that's what he was trying to say and the translation didn't really say that but um and i that's a hundred percent like you can't um and i've got friends that have clothing labels um in the states and they get all their fabric made in japan and then sent to the states and they're made there or my friend melody here is making a um her own sort of women's wear range inspired by a lot of the, the men's wear that we do and she'll just be like oh i just came back from this meeting and it was the worst thing ever because i can't like explain to this person like I want it like this and and we just have a different understanding of quality I guess and or how much passion we really put into it which is which is a bummer but that really explains why a lot of people do like buying Japanese stuff and yeah um and so I think that's what he was maybe trying to say there um um so like I said those Ironheart jeans um I went to the mill that makes those um, but I went there with my friends from New York. They have James, their brand. James, you're going to be a glamorous assistant and hold up the <laughs> Yeah, you can. Yeah, I guess the pair on the end or whatever. Yeah. Um, so that brand, Ironheart. And so the guy in the movie, Haraki-san, that was talking about the motorcycles sort of stuff, and he wanted to make those jeans. The other mill, so Okayama has a bunch of denim mills, um, and, and the Kuroki Mills makes these jeans and a few other brands. And I went there about four or five years ago with my friend's brands and we filmed a, a little thing similar to Weaving Shibusa. Um, and I think now they're upset that we never actually released it because Weaving Shibusa is like, it's amazing. But we sort of had this real similar looking thing first, but it was more just in the, um, in the mill. And so so I, I have been in there and I have uh, shot a similar video sort of to, to what we saw for, for my friend's brand. And there was a guy whose job, I swear to God, was to stand here. Like, imagine that screen was really bright. He had to stand there all day 
and just watch denim go past his eyes and it's about this far away and he's constantly just touching the denim and watching this denim go through like an x-ray sort of machine to find little bits and then he pauses it and then he <laughs> and then finds the bit and then reverses it and, and he's constantly checking it out. And I looked at it for about 20 seconds and I was like... <laughs> Like, you know what I mean? Like, it was just, it was like a really bright screen in his face all day. But he was, he was testing nonstop the fabric that was coming out of there. And he was just one guy. Um, and it's a, it's a suburb. It's not, it's not like a couple of, like, rooms. It is massive. It took us all day and we were driving in a car from one to the other to the other. And there's hundreds of these Japanese old guys that are just, it's their life and, you know, that's what they do. So it, it really is amazing. And to see it. It's yeah, it's sort of jaw dropping, and um, you can imp- and then I guess my role in the store is to sort of say to people, <laughs> this is why they're so expensive, and they're probably cheap, really, when it comes down to it. Like it's, um, it's sort of it's pretty overwhelming. Um, what else? Should we? Move on to the other. Yeah, yeah, these guys. Yeah, you can. No, no, no. Of course, we're a film institution, so we do have some um, just short films to to include in our conversation today. And I think we might um, screen um, the KFMG one, Chris. Do you think there? The reason why I chose that clip um, was because mainly, and getting back to what Marty was saying about value and and the cost of things and. We get a lot of people coming in our stores and their first reaction is, wow, that's expensive. And we sort of try and explain where the value is. And I think, so it's the starting point in, for me is like, it's style. Like um, Bill Cunningham said that like, the clothing you wear is the, the armor you, you have against everyday life. And it's a reflection of yourself. Like, so if you're sort of, for me, I want to have things that are going to last and sort of make me look good, fit well, and even in terms of the value, and just to a certain respect, it seems shallow and, you know, but, but if you're wearing good things, you feel good about yourself and you spend money on invested in something that's going to last and you can build a wardrobe over time rather than just kind of buying something and throwing it away, which is, I think, the reason why we're here and why the Japanese have, have done what they've done and, and started to produce things the old way, I suppose, and continued that is because it's got a tangible connection to something real and authentic and in, the modern life we live now, where technology advances like by the second, and there's Instagram and Apple and all these things that just like change your life forever. And there's there's still cloth, and cloth's woven by 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 a, a machine that or, or a person, and that sort of takes time and effort and passion and all these things that go into producing that one sort of roll of cloth that goes into producing all these garments that thousands of people wear. I think people forget that. So what I was getting at with this is that the Japanese have, have been doing it for a long time, and I suppose since, ever since the Second World War ended and the Americans occupied Japan, it sort of started from there, I think. They didn't really have a fashion industry until that happened. Um, but now, off the back of this sort of resurgence in quality and this return to appreciation of good things um, and investment in that, young people all over the world, us included, really... Uh, getting involved in that and trying to sort of educate other people to try and stop them from buying mass-produced unethical things and buy better things that have more meaning. And these guys, Nickelbogger, have been in business for about four years now, I think, and the guy with the jacket on who's walking in the clip there is 24 years old. I think he was 21 when he started the company, or 20. It's crazy. The guy's insane. Um, 
and he's heavily inspired by the Japanese and what they've done and sort of and how America used to be this place that had the sort of union made ethic and everything started they all these denim started in San Francisco with Levi's and many of the brands and the, the big revolution with the gold mining and construction it was all America and then it kind of went <laughs> completely and America now is kind of seen as the the antithesis of that it's like it's the mass-produced fast food epidemic the president of America is one example um, <laughs> not to get political at all but um, <laughs> but it's kind of lost that sort of um, that that name it used to have is, is the, the the union made strong country of good things and Japan sort of has, has gained that reputation because they have the passion and drive to do things properly and have that honor system where they wouldn't allow themselves to get in that position at all like as, as a country or as, as, a, as a culture really and they sell it back to america and they sell it back to america now, yeah. because they do and, better and, so, the, and these yeah. 24 year old kids in new york are kind of trying to restart that in america and there's there's i think even in the four years i've been doing this there's probably 20 more american brands that have started with young people doing and generally they use japanese fabric which is <laughs> i think there is a, a a bit of a movement towards buying smarter yeah, definitely. You, you, you're definitely going to pay more for the garment you're buying, but you're buying one mm. over a five-year period instead of buying one every six months and replacing it. You're buying smarter, not buying cheaper. Mm. And it, you can, and on top of that, you have the ability to kind of understand where it came from as well, and and how it came to be, and what the reasons behind it were. And there's like I could go on and bore people for ages about the sort of the stories of details in clothing. And how they came, but you can kind of trace everything in fashion back to a functional aspect of clothing. It was made because it worked well, or the fabric was made because it was warm, or because and it was stitched a certain way because it was stronger, or you had a pocket here because it was necessary. And and later on, when things modernized, what was that one that you, uh, <laughs> Chris um, actually educated me earlier? We were sat having a drink outside before we came in here, and he said a fact that I'd never heard before and it was interesting, so I think it's something that Chris should share with you tonight. Glad you reminded me because I was probably going to forget that fact. <laughs> I was going to go for a different one. Um, <laughs> it was still pocket related though, I think. But um, yeah, like with um, back before the days of central heating, particularly in England and America and cold areas of the world, everybody wore a vest or a waistcoat, as you'd see in England. Um, so shirts never had pockets, ever. There was no pocket shirts, in, like, it just wasn't a thing. And then when people started putting heating in their homes, they didn't need to wear vests as much. So they started putting pockets on shirts. And that's like, it's just one of those simple things that comes from history. But I think that's kind of, the story of what you're wearing is really important, certainly for me. Um, and denim is a huge part of that. It's like the story, you can, you can talk to Marty for three hours about the thread count and weight and yarn and indigo dyeing process of a pair of jeans. And <laughs> it's fascinating, you know? Yeah, that's very um, true. It's yeah. Uniqlo's hard, <laughs> and when people come to the store and ask me that stuff, um. I think Uniqlo is a, um, a appealing to a certain demographic within the market, and they're doing a really, really good job at it, appealing to that but mass. And do you think consumer? However, it's our job, and it's everyone's job to educate people to. Mm maybe not buy a pair of $40 salvage jeans. But the problem with and Uniqlo I'm is they do it so well because they're Japanese. Exactly. Yeah. So, but I mean, Uniqlo it's a now is... Society, which is a kind of the... the yeah. Is but Uniqlo now is... Uh, like our Uniqlo is a watered down version of, of, of what Uniqlo was in Japan. Like, like I said, with the band, I used to tour there and like 
my band and I would just go crazy when we got to Uniqlo. And that sounds so like now I'd never say that, but honestly, we would. We get like basics mostly, um, and it was pretty expensive. Like it's somehow gotten cheaper as well. But yeah, explaining like it's hard to explain it, but they do stuff really well. They honestly do. Like if if someone said to me H and M or Uniqlo, I'm choosing Uniqlo every single time. But there's I saw a little um, a documentary with the owner of Uniqlo. Um, and it's really interesting and for, uh, from a business perspective and people should definitely check it out. But the guy was just talking about how he failed so many times internationally and that just drove him more and more and he would just study and be like, why are we failing? And he, and he, he loved failing because he could, yeah, make it better. And, and yeah, so Uniqlo is hard to describe but because of that Japanese like desire to really make good stuff. <laughs> we're getting getting yeah. the plain white tees. We might, if we get time later on, yeah. do a little clip of a company in Germany. That yeah, yeah. I must admit, I I I do appreciate Uniqlo, but I, I, I there is something. Yeah, but then I'm sort of lured by when I hear a story about oh, this, this Italian man made in a little village, yeah. and yeah. it's like okay, I'll do that. Yes, yeah. 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 so we are all like we are all I know, like that. But yeah, it's, but yeah. it's honestly hard to go to Uniqlo and criticize something in there mm. right like you you don't really go like oh that's trashy or whatever like it's all timeless it's all really well made like it, it is yeah. well made yeah I mean, for me the only thing that i question is kind of if it's if it's well made and it's cheap there's a reason why it's cheap exactly. so if someone didn't get paid probably uh, like exactly. that's what i always think which is and i'm obviously prejudiced but i want to say that <laughs> uniqlo i would ha i'd be like i'd have to bet on it that they would have better practices than a lot of yeah. other companies honestly yeah and just from seeing the videos yeah, but just from seeing the videos with that guy as well, like I was like, wow, it's a pretty interesting sort of like aspect mm. of it. But I can't guarantee that. But I'd be pretty confident in saying that. I suppose get my, my background originally, I was trained as an engineer at Nissan, so I was Japanese company trained me, and it's to getting back to Japanese mass production. Toyota invented it, and they got like they can put cars out at forty-three seconds a car for line. It's like nuts how insane it goes, yeah. and that's like. <laughs> So you'd be probably, if they can get the production process that finite, that there's no wastage at all anyway, that's a good thing. As long as people are getting paid ethically, then you can't question it, really. Yeah, really what I wanted to talk about um, in relation to the film I've, um, I've put forward here is the whole thing of making it your own uh, in that... As they, as they said in, in, in the film, so far away, like Japan is so far away from the US, so they were getting a stream of information and they were putting their take on it. And now I, I've, I feel that that's happening in Australia as well, as the Japanese denim culture becomes more known and more widespread. We're we put our own take on it and eventually that'll probably gather enough speed that there will be these denim brands being manufactured right here in Australia that have that same level of passion and detail and, yeah, just... Well, not even specific to denim. Are there, like, any brands? Exactly, yeah. And, and I mean, uh, yes, there are many brands that are manufactured in Australia... But coming down to the, the weight of the threads that you use to stitch the seams together and the, the, the makeup of those threads, the, 
just all these little details that it's like here in Australia we find it very difficult to get hold of these materials um, just because there's no demand there's not the demand for it even if there were here the skills in terms of manufacture are kind of on yeah much either anymore it's I mean, it's an aging skill set were the original mm. garment that was, industry that areas of melbourne the, yeah. the rag trade yeah so i mean uh, i was talking to marty before this this machine here is the embroidery machine that i use to do chain stitch embroidery i'll just grab this jacket over here <coughs> donated by nick's wife so this is chain stitch embroidery on this so the stitch that it creates is very unique to, well, to that machine. It's it's a raised pile where it creates a chain, and yeah. So these machines they they're still produced. However, the the vintage older ones they're much more they're highly sought after due to the fact that. I think they run better. I've used new ones and they're all stiff and they they don't have the sole. <laughs> so that's that's Which is a big part of everything we're talking about. I this is like these three machines here do three entirely different things. So this one here as I mentioned, the embroidery machine. Getting thread to do that sort of embroidery in Australia it's bloody hard work. You call up these <laughs> Every the person suppliers. you call treats you like you're an idiot. Yeah. You're like, oh, I want this machine and they've never heard Why of it. Why do you want it? Yeah, they've never, they yeah. haven't heard of the machine because no one buys that machine. No one has like, I've got, I've got a count, I've got, actually, I've got the same machine as that one, sorry. Yeah. And I call like 20 sewing machine companies in Australia, experts, and, and they don't know that machine because no one uses it. And then they say, oh, you want this? I'm like, no, dude, it's I, really, yeah. I really don't want this. And they're like, I'm telling you. And, I've hung up frustrated about five or six times and Ant and I end exactly up getting the, the same, same needles from the same place and this yeah. guy's like, I haven't even heard of this needle before, but yeah, <laughs> 200 bucks. And we're like, oh, yeah. yeah. Whenever I go exactly. in there, he mentions you, you, you both yeah. your names. Yeah, straight he's away. chasing us. Needles for you. <laughs> yeah, I have paid him now. But yeah, so getting the thread for this machine is is like a nightmare, but you make it happen because... Which is probably what happened in Japan. That's, I mean, that's what the guy from Full Count was talking about. He wanted this, so he found a way to make it happen. So that's what passionate people do. They, <laughs> they find a way. So, yeah, it's, it's just... I mean, it's an uphill battle at the moment, but I think the more people that get behind this, this new movement of... Well, I don't know if it's a new movement um, so much. I think it's a new way of thinking. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, a new way of thinking. And then after that, people wanting to learn how these machines work and all this mm. sort of thing. And again, I work, I'll, I'll talk you through the machines that I've got here just while I'm while I'm at it, because this is, <laughs> this is my show and tell as well. So this machine here, the uh, 43200G Union Special, this is the first generation, which means, what are we looking at? Probably around it's the 40s. Probably, well, 1939 to 1945. Yeah. So 
this machine manufactured pre-World War II. This does specifically one job, and that's just to do the, the hem on your jeans. That's all it does. And it's been engineered and designed specifically for that. So the way it's designed, it's free here, so you can feed it through. It has the, the folder. Which Are you miss missing the, the knee arm because it's not? <laughs> Don't tell him that. <laughs> um, yeah, so the folder will fold the hem as it goes through. And this will do the chain stitch, the grailed chain stitch. So, and I won't go into specifics on chain stitch. I could geek so out all day. There's a really good story about the uh, the whole effect of that folder, but it's a bit... The roping. It's a bit I, think, the I, roping. I think if you touch on the roping, Which, that would yeah, be yeah, quite interesting. Because it's a, a fundamental reason why this machine's different to a modern one is the, the way the, the feed works through the folder. So when, when it goes through, modern machines have like a double dogs normally the, the fabric on the top and bottom goes through at the same speed so there's no differential in that position whereas this has lower feed dogs in a folder and it traps the fabric in the middle and twists it so when you sort of with way that creates a roping effect which is a very nerdy aspect of so the, look at you again Mike. I'll add to that <laughs> yeah the, his, the, the history with it is that the Levi's used this um, and all the nerds that we've seen in these videos wanted to make their jeans like so actually this machine has a problem with it when it came out. I think it's, yeah. beautiful. it's a beautiful it's a imperfection. Imperfection. Yeah, so an imperfection. So it was pulling it too hard and creating this roping effect. So all these vintage Levi's that these Japanese guys had had this roping effect, so they needed that. <laughs> so you can buy a machine that does the same stitch for $200. This machine now is like on eBay, if you can and find it, is about $7,000. But... Well, that's, that's that, twisting that, that, that was the that's same. When you wash... The, the, the denim it will twist. Yeah, um, they didn't talk about that specifically. But yeah, so all those brands, every brand we've seen in the video and every Japanese brand and even every American brand and every store like ours, I can't afford one of those machines. I've wanted one for about 10 years. Um, Me too. Yeah. But <laughs> I got lucky. Every single, yeah. <laughs> every single brand does have exactly that machine to replicate something that was on vintage Levi's because... Like I said, they're Japanese and they're obsessed with this stuff. And so now we all like think we need that machine. So it's it's honestly it's one of those things where you look at the machine and you're like, do I need this seven thousand dollar machine? No. <laughs> but every denim store in the world that like like ours that's trying to sell like ex like exclusive sort of Japanese denim needs that machine. And the and only thing is, one of the main brands we stock, Stevenson Overalls, makes pre-war style jeans that don't have a chain stitch. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, single needles. <laughs> like I said, when I bought that, that, that first pair of jeans I bought way back then, A, that pair of jeans would break most machines. Um, yeah. But I bought that on one side of Tokyo, and it took me... Back then, the iPhones went out, so I was in Japan going, like, oh, how am I going to find this store? And so I have spent, I think, like two days trying to find a place that had that machine so that it could hem those jeans. So it was one from the other. I bought them here and I had to get them done here. And now, yeah, heaps of stores, you know, all around the world do have that machine, but that's the price it is. And, and it, it sort of does just this one imperfection sort of, but that's the level of geekiness that the and Japanese... <laughs> keeping yeah. it operational is a challenge as well. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, finding parts for it is like... And can continue, I'm sure, but yeah, it's. Well, I, I have a, a, f a friend in the US who's currently selling one, uh, a first generation one, which is all completely authentic. Every part is numbered to the first generation one, which he's selling for 5,000 US currently. 
if anyone wants it, I can pass on his <laughs> Or wants to lend me the money so I can get yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then this one, again, does a completely different thing. So where this one, where they were talking about the feed dog that feeds the denim through, this one doesn't have that and is specifically for doing denim repairs. Um, well, or workwear repairs as it's described in the manual. So, so this one I, I purchased from the States. It, um, so you move the fabric underneath it and this foot bounces up and down on it so you can get into tight spaces and all that sort of thing. So this is my sort of daily driver. This is where I enjoy spending most of my time staring down at this needle going up and down. And that's called a darning machine. Yeah, so that's so your, that, your darning machine. Yeah. So it will replace the fabric that's been lost. Um, I should have probably loaded some images of before and afters, but I always forget to take before and after shots. I'm terrible that way. But, yeah, so that's... So all of these machines um, are no longer manufactured. They're, there are newer versions of them, but there's something about these that are just... Yeah, there's, there's a harmony that they have that you can't get now. So... Yeah... <laughs> I think you're right. I think there's something they've got soul, and, and that soul mm. yeah. is it's like a vintage car. It's like a vintage car, vintage car, vintage bikes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and people come in. I've got a similar. I've got another similar to that machine as well. Um, and people come into the store and they say, "Do you use that, <laughs> or is that is that just for looks?" Oh. It's like, oh, no, I actually Such a do. common question. Yeah, you know, and and so that blows people's minds. Like, because the first thing they think is that it's a it's that it's a part prop. of your shop display. <laughs> a prop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, it's like, you know, we use it every day. Yeah. So they're pretty cool. They are hard to find, but they are worth it without a doubt. And it's the only machine that can really repair denim properly. Otherwise, you have to put a patch behind it and do like, you know, right. the... Yeah. We are getting perilously close to time. And I don't oh. want Nick to miss out on yeah. his oh, extraordinary no. oh, show and tell. Yeah, <laughs> Nick, uh, I, d I don't think we'll have time to show the film. Is that okay? Or Not yes, really. No, no, no but we can over. Give that we everyone wants to stay and watch the film. <laughs> yeah. Who wants to miss out on that? No. I thought How it was more important, important to hear from you rather than the film. But um, uh, what would it, you like? It's, it's, yeah. it's, well, do, uh, are, we, are we strictly cutting off at a certain time? Yes, yes. Oh. Okay, well. Sorry. No. Let's do film and quick chat. Quick, after or, which, like five minutes from Nick. Only two minutes, isn't it? Yeah, it's like three, three, yeah, three, we'll, yeah, we'll three minutes. Rock and roll. Minutes uh, so, sorry, I had so a yeah, long basically, film. this is a film about the denim brand that I work for, uh, Denham. It's a Dutch denim label, but we have a deep tie in with Japan. So I thought it was quite relevant. No, it is relevant. Yes. Um, yeah. Within the discussion that we're having tonight. Stop in these videos, James. So yeah, that, that was the first element of my show and tell, and we'll rush through it quite quickly. Yeah. But I was going to talk about uh, the collection and archives that I've got in the corner. Um, do we have time? Let's five minutes. Sorry, five yeah, minutes. sorry. Yeah, you can do it. You can do it. So, <laughs> for this, I, I can't hold and talk. So, um, yeah. So, um, Denham is kind of the other side of the spectrum in terms of everyone's been talking about the natural 
wearing patterns in the patina of, uh, of denim. Um, and a lot of denim purists will say that you have to do it yourself. You have to start off with a pair of virgin, dry, raw, whatever you want to call it, a pair of unwashed, untreated denim. Um, and whilst Denham is a firm believer of that, and we do do a lot of, uh, of our virgin denim and really celebrate and, and praise that, we also make some of the best replica wear patterns in the industry. And I'm, I'm, I'm biased. I love the brand. I, I, I live the brand 24-7, um, and it's a big part of my life. But uh, we... He's right. We basically, really, yeah. <laughs> really invest time and effort into replicating amazing denim wear patterns. Uh, Jason is a, one of the biggest denim collectors in the world, and he has this amazing garment library. And from that garment library, he'll select certain jeans, and then he'll take these jeans to some of the most amazing factories in the world, whether it's Japan or whether it's Italy or whether it's in the UAE, and we'll work with some of the most up-to-date technologies to, to recreate these wear patterns, or some of the most um, ancient, slow processes that all of these denim brands are talking about, we'll also do those too. So we're at both ends of that spectrum of the real heritage of denim, and also at the cutting edge of technology within the denim and fashion world. Mm. Uh, Denham's uh, motto is worship tradition, destroy convention. You have to look back at all these amazing denim brands. Look back at Levi's, look back at um, Full Count, look back at Avisu, look back at Samurai, look back at Momotaro, um, and all of these amazing brands. But you also have to um, maybe push things forward a little bit. And that's kind of where I fit into the picture and where Denham as a brand fits into the picture There's as well. There's a good quote on actually. I, I think it was a musician, but uh, someone said that every, everything should be 80% past and 20% future. And that's a good balance of mm. sort of not losing your roots, but always advancing a little bit. And the thing with denim, it's definitely more commercial than like stuff that I sell. But when I used to work at uh, Superglue and I was doing a lot of stuff with denim, um, if I gave people like five pairs of jeans, they were buying the denim every single time. Like it's one of the like like they have modernized it and they've made it whatever. But everyone that tries them on is like, I like these ones. Um, so it is interesting, and that's exactly what they're doing, and they do do it really well. Even though it is a commercial brand c compared to the stuff that I necessarily like, it is amazing. Like compared if, to if everything else has in commercial, a yeah. spare five minutes, ten minutes, one hour. Three days. The <laughs> most amazing book in the world is over there in the corner. It's the Denham five-year um, Bible. And there's everything from Jason's personal archive to um, remade garments where we've taken vintage fabrics and recut them into different clothes. Mm. Um, and there's also an archive of the virgin to vintage denim. So uh, the people that have worn in these jeans for however long, whether it's 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, um, and their stories as well. So um, come and grab the book mm. and I can talk you and through anything. I was going to add, feel free. I've got a lot of this stuff in the store as well, a lot of Japanese denim books. Feel free to ever come in and check it out, open them up and ask questions about whatever and see. Yeah, there is like, there's uh, quite like, again, on, on Japan, they've got more menswear magazines than the rest of the world combined. Um, <laughs> and so we don't even have one in Australia. And more frequent as well. Like no, we have men's, every men's style or whatever, but it's about like 
abs. It's mm. not about fashion. <laughs> so, yeah, like there really is. They release a denim book like every year and you and I just look at it and go like, oh, man, I can't even flick through this. There's like it's four crazy, or five monthlies every month yeah. with like so much content. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Do, does anyone have any questions for I, me I, or any of the other panelists? I think if we or? could, we are more than welcome to hang around and ask our panelists oh. after. I think because I think we're just. We, I don't want to keep. I'm sure people have got other things they might need to get to. So I want. Could you please join me in thanking our incredible panel today? <laughs> you have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com/acmeonline or the Acme website.